Part four of Korematsu versus United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Robinson in Birmingham, Alabama. Korematsu versus United States. An opinion of the United States Supreme Court. Part four. Decided on December 18th. 1944. Please note, Part 4 is a reading of Mr. Justice Jackson's dissent. This reading does not include a reading of the Court's opinion, Justice Frankfurter's concurrence, Justice Roberts' dissent, or Justice Murphy's dissent. For ease of listening, this reading omits footnotes and legal citations found within the text of the Court's opinion. Korematsu was born on our soil of parents born in Japan. The Constitution makes him a citizen of the United States by nativity and a citizen of California by residence. No claim is made that he is not loyal to this country. There is no suggestion that apart from the matter involved here, he is not law-abiding and well-disposed. Korematsu, however, has been convicted of an act not commonly a crime. It consists merely of being present in the state whereof he is a citizen near the place where he was born, and where all his life he has lived. Even more unusual is the series of military orders which made this conduct a crime. They forbid such a one to remain, and they also forbid him to leave. They were so drawn that the only way Korematsu could avoid violation was to give himself up to the military authority. This meant submission to custody, examination, and transportation out of the territory, to be followed by indeterminate confinement in detention camps. A citizen's presence in the locality, however, was made a crime only if his parents were of Japanese birth. Had Korematsu been one of four, the others being, say, a German alien enemy, an Italian alien enemy, and a citizen of American-born ancestors, convicted of treason but out on parole, only Korematsu's presence would have violated the order. The difference between their innocence and his crime would result not from anything he did, said, or thought, different than they, but only in that he was born of a different racial stock. Now, if any fundamental assumption underlies our system, it is that guilt is personal and not inheritable. Even if all of one's antecedents had been convicted of treason, the Constitution forbids its penalties to be visited upon him, for it provides that no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. But here is an attempt to make an otherwise innocent act a crime merely because this prisoner is the son of parents as to whom he had no choice and belongs to a race from which there is no way to resign. If Congress in peacetime legislation should enact such a criminal law, I should suppose this court would refuse to enforce it. But the law, which this prisoner is convicted of disregarding, is not found in any act of Congress, but in a military order. Neither the act of Congress nor the executive order of the President, nor both together, would afford a basis for this conviction. It rests on the orders of General DeWitt, and it is said that if the military commander had reasonable military grounds for promulgating the orders, they are constitutional and become law, and the court is required to enforce them. There are several reasons why I cannot subscribe to this doctrine. 
It would be impracticable and dangerous idealism to expect or insist that each specific military command in an area of probable operations will conform to conventional tests of constitutionality. When an area is so beset that it must be put under military control at all, the paramount consideration is that its measures be successful rather than legal. The armed services must protect a society, not merely its constitution. The very essence of the military job is to marshal physical force, to remove every obstacle to its effectiveness, to give it every strategic advantage. Defense measures will not, and often should not, be held within the limits that bind civil authority in peace. No court can require such a commander in such circumstances to act as a reasonable man. He may be unreasonably cautious and exacting. Perhaps he should be. But a commander in temporarily focusing the life of a community on defense is carrying out a military program. He is not making law in the sense the courts know the term. He issues orders, and they may have a certain authority as military commands, although they may be very bad as constitutional law. But if we cannot confine military expedients by the Constitution, neither would I distort the Constitution to approve all that the military may deem expedient. This is what the court appears to be doing, whether consciously or not. I cannot say from any evidence before me that the orders of General DeWitt were not reasonably expedient military precautions nor could I say that they were. But even if they were permissible military procedures, I deny that it follows that they are constitutional. If, as the court holds, it does follow, then we may as well say that any military order will be constitutional and have done with it. The limitation under which courts always will labor in examining the necessity for a military order are illustrated by this case. How does the court know that these orders have a reasonable basis in necessity? No evidence whatever on that subject has been taken by this or any other court. There is sharp controversy as to the credibility of the DeWitt report. So the court, having no real evidence before it, has no choice but to accept General DeWitt's own unsworn, self-serving statement, untested by any cross-examination, that what he did was reasonable. And thus it will always be when courts try to look into the reasonableness of a military order. In the very nature of things, military decisions are not susceptible of intelligent judicial appraisal. They do not pretend to rest on evidence, but are made on information that often would not be admissible and on assumptions that could not be proved. Information in support of an order could not be disclosed to courts without danger that it would reach the enemy. Neither can courts act on communications made in confidence. Hence, courts can never have any real alternative to accepting the mere declaration of the authority that issued the order that it was reasonably necessary from a military viewpoint. Much is said of the danger to liberty from the Army program for deporting and detaining these citizens of Japanese extraction. But a judicial construction of the Due Process Clause that will sustain this order is a far more subtle blow to liberty than the promulgation of the order itself. A military order, however unconstitutional, is not apt to last longer than the military emergency. Even during that period, a succeeding commander may revoke it all. But once a judicial opinion rationalizes such an order, 
to show that it conforms to the Constitution, or rather rationalizes the Constitution, to show that the Constitution sanctions such an order. The court for all time has validated the principle of racial discrimination in criminal procedure and of transplanting American citizens. The principle then lies about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward plausible claim of an urgent need. Every repetition embeds that principle more deeply in our law and thinking and expands it to new purposes. All who observe the work of courts are familiar with what Judge Cardoza described as the tendency of a principle to expand itself to the limit of its logic. A military commander may overstep the bounds of constitutionality, and it is an incident. But if we review and approve, that passing incident becomes the doctrine of the Constitution. There it has a generative power of its own, and all that it creates will be in its own image. Nothing better illustrates this danger than does the court's opinion in this case. It argues that we are bound to uphold the conviction of Korematsu because we upheld one in Hirabayashi versus United States when we sustained these orders insofar as they applied a curfew requirement to a citizen of Japanese ancestry. I think we should learn something from that experience. In that case, we were urged to consider only that curfew feature that being all that technically was involved, because it was the only count necessary to sustain Hirabayashi's conviction and sentence. We yielded, and the Chief Justice guarded the opinion as carefully as language will do. He said, Our investigation here does not go beyond the inquiry whether, in the light of all the relevant circumstances preceding and attending their promulgation, the challenged orders and statute afforded a reasonable basis for the action taken in imposing the curfew. We decide only the issue as we have defined it. We decide only that the curfew order as applied, and at the time it was applied, was within the boundaries of the war power. And again, it is unnecessary to consider whether or to what extent such findings would support orders differing from the curfew order. However, in spite of our limiting words, we did validate a discrimination on the basis of ancestry, for mild and temporary deprivation of liberty. Now the principle of racial discrimination is pushed from support of mild measures to very harsh ones, and from temporary deprivations to indeterminate ones. And the precedent, which it is said requires us to do so, is Hirabayashi. The court is now saying that in Hirabayashi, we did decide the very things we there said we were not deciding because we said that these citizens could be made to stay in their homes during the hours of dark. It is said we must require them to leave home entirely, and if that, we are told they may also be taken into custody for deportation, and if that, it is argued they may also be held for some undetermined time in detention camps. How far the principle of this case would be extended before plausible reasons would play out, I do not know. I should hold that a civil court cannot be made to enforce an order which violates constitutional limitations, even if it is a reasonable exercise of military authority. The courts can exercise only the judicial power, can apply only law, and must abide by the Constitution or they cease to be civil courts and become instruments of military policy. Of course, the existence of a military power resting on force, so vagrant, 
so centralized, so necessarily heedless of the individual, is an inherent threat to liberty. But I would not lead people to rely on this court for a review that seems to me wholly delusive. The military reasonableness of these orders can only be determined by military superiors. If the people ever let command of the war power fall into irresponsible and unscrupulous hands, the courts wield no power equal to its restraint. The chief restraint upon those who command the physical forces of the country, in the future as in the past, must be their responsibility to the political judgments of their contemporaries and to the moral judgments of history. My duties as a justice, as I see them, do not require me to make a military judgment as to whether General DeWitt's evacuation and detention program was a reasonable military necessity. I do not suggest that the courts should have attempted to interfere with the army in carrying out its task, but I do not think they may be asked to execute a military expedient that has no place in law under the Constitution. I would reverse the judgment and discharge the prisoner. End of Part 4 End of Korematsu versus United States An Opinion of the United States Supreme Court